Good morning. It's good to be with you again. It's been a while. Uh, it's not because Pastor Josh did not invite me. It's because I did an interim at another church in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. So uh, I'm finally free again to roam. It's good to see you. Thank you for your invitation. Pastor Josh, if you don't know, is one of the most beloved uh, Bible teachers at Grace. He teaches for us part-time and Whenever I ask our students unofficially, what do you guys think? They said, oh, we love him. So thank you for sharing him with, with us. So it's good to see former students and present current students. It's good to be, uh, good to be with you. Uh, I was asked to talk about the book of Psalms. And uh, I know we all love the Psalms, right? You just saw a few Psalms up there on the, uh, on the screen. Uh, but uh, you have to like uh, you have to like the songs, I guess. Uh, I know I did from uh, from childhood. I used to go to church. I grew up in the communist country of Romania, and church started at nine o'clock every morning. From nine to ten, there was a prayer. From ten to eleven, Sunday school. Eleven to twelve, worship service. Where did we get that idea? Anybody know? We got that from you guys. If you look a hundred years ago in the church in the United States of America, church started at nine with the prayer hour, and then there was a Sunday school hour, and then there was the worship service. So we, we learned that from you guys, and every time I would go, probably nine out of ten times, the person leading the prayer uh, would read a psalm. So I learned, uh, I learned the psalms early on. Uh, I teach Old Testament at Grace, so uh, I teach the book of Psalms uh, when it comes around. And from, as far as uh, definition, uh, I don't think this is working. So if, can you move the slide, please? Thank you. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, it's called Tehillim Praises. So that kind of gives us a little glimpse of the fact that the book of Psalms was meant to be sung. It was, in a way, the hymnal of the people of Israel. The Psalms were not read. The Psalms were sung. And actually, we see that in the title that we have in our Bibles that comes from the Greek translation that means, basically, songs sang with accompaniment. Now, uh, they didn't have a guitar back then, but they had the, something that preceded the guitar. Stringed instrument. However that looked, they, they praised the Lord with stringed instruments. Not just one, but many. So, uh, again, today we praise the Lord with all types of instruments. And that is okay. In a way, I'm glad that the sheet music was not preserved from the time of David. Aren't you glad? You should be. Because if we would have had the sheet music from the time of David, I know some people would have said, well, if it was good enough for David, it's good enough for us. Well, also the Bible says, sing to the Lord a new song. Exactly. So I love the hymns because I grew up with the hymns. But also you got to learn the new songs because the Bible says to learn the new, uh, to learn the new songs. Let's see. Does this work? Oh, yeah. Woo. Works. Maybe. Okay. Um, Right there. So I have to look back every time. I, okay, great. 
I'll do my workouts for the morning. There are five books of Psalms. Now I know uh, you have to look that very carefully in your Bibles uh, to see. But if you were to study them, you would know that each of those books ends with a doxology. Something that says, praise the Lord. Right? There's a lot of praise the Lord in the Psalms. Well, each of these books ends with a doxology. And in a way, Psalm 150, now it says 151 there because in Hebrew... There's 151 because of the way they are broken up. But the last one is also like a big doxology that closes the entire Psalter. The rabbis taught and they said, As God gave Moses five books of the law, so God gave David five books of the Psalms. Now, David is not the author of all the Psalms, as you can see. Uh, There were other authors inspired by the Holy Spirit to write uh, like Asaph, Korah, uh, and then the sons of Korah. Even Moses has a psalm. Solomon has a psalm. And then a lot of the psalms are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. But that's okay. As long as we understand that this is still the word of God inspired by him. What is the function of the psalms? I think one of the reasons we love the psalms is because they express... Next slide, please. They express the human sentiment in one's relationship with God. The Lord is my shepherd. They're very personal. Out of the depths, I cry to the Lord. And and you see the psalmist in the pit of despair. And then you see him on the mountains of happiness, so to speak. Whereas we will see in in chapter 1. The Psalms speak to our emotions. And all of us can relate and can identify with the Psalms. We can all identify with the Psalms. And that's why I think we love the Psalms. Because the Psalmist is very honest with God. If the psalmist is in the pit of despair, he doesn't say, Oh, Lord, it's not that bad. No, no, no. He says, Lord, I'm in the pit of despair. And out of my despair, I cried out to the Lord. Now, notice, please, there's no psalmist that's atheist or agnostic. That's why I say they express the human sentiment in one's relationship with God. All the psalmists have a relationship with God. And out of that relationship, they feel... They can be honest with God. There's nothing God cannot take from us. Nothing. Good or bad. And again, as I said, it was the hymnal or the prayer book of Israel. But again, the prayers and the songs here were were sung. They They were never read. If you look in your hymnal that you have in your pews, you'll see that a lot of the sounds... A lot of the words of those hymns are based on the Psalms. Because they were supposed to be sung. What is the value of the Psalms? Well, they're very valuable because, of of course, it's the Word of God. But notice, please, it is the third most quoted book in the New Testament. 
After Isaiah and Deuteronomy, the Psalms are the most quoted by New Testament writers, including Jesus. So even though it's Old Testament, it is used in the New Testament. Actually, after Jesus raises from the dead, Jesus rebukes the disciples on the road to Emmaus because they didn't know that the Psalms spoke about him. In other words, if we read the Psalms and we don't find Jesus in there, we read it the wrong way. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus raises from the dead, says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament... Specifically the Psalms speak about Jesus. So we need to also look at the Psalms with an eye towards Jesus. He says that actually not once, but twice. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He said the same things to the disciples after he appeared to them. The, the Psalms are valuable also because they give us a theological insight into God's sovereignty. Even though the psalmist is sometimes in the pit of despair, he knows that God is in control. Isn't that good? We need to get that in our hearts and minds. Because if we don't have the certainty that God is in control, and if you just spend five minutes watching the news, you'll be in despair. <laughs> I had a friend who just told me, we canceled our TV. <laughs> we got too depressing. For one year, they didn't watch TV. Because they got too depressed. Now that might be a good thing for all of us to fast from, from the news. But even though we see what's going on in the world, we need to make sure we understand, my dear brothers and sisters, that God is still on the throne. God is in control. And the psalmist, again, whether he was in the pit of despair or on the mountains of spiritual success, he knows that God is in control. And that should give us a lot of peace. And that's why the Psalms are valuable because they ground us in the fact that God is in control. And again, as I said before, the devotional aid through the centuries. If you, if you have a Bible, you know there are now those fancy Bibles with Bible reading plans. Maybe you have one of those. If it, if maybe it's a one-year Bible or a two-year Bible or a three-year Bible. Usually what they do, they have an Old Testament text, a New Testament passage, a portion of a psalm, and a portion of Proverbs, right? There's wisdom in that. Why did they do that? It's because they knew that it helps you in your devotional life. So sometimes when I don't have time to go through that fancy Bible, sometimes I just read a psalm or a chapter of Proverbs. So today is July 1st, then I would read Proverbs chapter 1. And then Psalm chapter 1. And then you can also do that if you don't have time to go through those fancy plans. Now, there are different types of, there are different types of psalms. There are hymns of praise. Psalm 8, for example. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We like those psalms, right? Hey, praise God. Because he is the creator God. And the psalmist praises God because he is the creator uh, the, the psalmist did not believe in evolution. The, 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 the psalmist knew that God created the world. 
He's not just sovereign. He's also the creator God. You got to praise him for that. But also you have laments. For those of you who have teenagers, you better learn the laments. Boy, you think I'm kidding? Psalm 3. This is Psalm 3. You know how it starts? The superscript says, The Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. What? Your son can rebel against you? There, there, are, there are verses for that? Yes, there are. They'll call laments. These are not just places where you, you go and complain about God. Actually, if you read all the laments, it always ends with something very interesting. A praise to God for answered prayer. See, even in your lament, even in our lament, God is still sovereign. But again, God invites us to go to Him sometimes with laments. Some Psalms teach us how to pray after we have sinned. Everybody knows Psalm 51, written by David after he committed sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David has been teaching all of us how to pray after sinning. Have mercy. Have mercy. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Some, some psalms are penitential, but some are thanksgiving psalms. What do you do when God is answering your prayer? You, well, you pray and you thank Him. You say thank you. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. They go together. They always go together. I will offer to you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Psalm 116. And call on the name of the Lord. And then there are royal psalms. Royal psalms refer to not just sometimes the, the chosen king that God has. But also refers to God being king. The Lord reigns. Psalm 99.1. Who's on the throne? God. The Lord reigns. It doesn't matter who is uh, on the human throne. It matters that God is on his throne and he is the one who's king. We will close the service today later on by singing a hymn based on Psalm 72. That's a royal psalm. And then there are wisdom psalms. Which is Psalm 1 that I want us to talk about this morning, I know some of you are hurrying because you have to watch the World Cup, so I'll be, uh, I'll be short. No, no, you can record the World Cup, okay. We look at Psalm 1 is what we call a wisdom psalm. A wisdom psalm means this. The Bible contains what we call wisdom literature. Job... Ecclesiastes, primarily, and Proverbs are wisdom books. But within the book of Psalms, we have what's called wisdom psalms. Which means that God has a moral universe, and God is the moral lawgiver, and He has instituted certain principles, moral principles, by which we have to live. The wise person lives in accordance to these principles, where the fool doesn't. And that's what we have in Psalm 1. It is not by accident that Psalter starts with Psalm 1. Because it teaches us how to live our lives. And as Pastor Josh said, you have a choice. We have a choice. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 is called a Torah psalm, meaning a, a psalm of instruction and teaching, because the psalms were meant to be sung, but the psalms are also meant to teach. In other words, you can't just read them, oh, it's nice, nice music. No, no, no. They're meant to be teaching us how to live our lives. And here you have a very clear distinction between a righteous person and a wicked person. And you can see this visually in these paths. You always have a choice. We always have a choice whether every day we're going to walk on the way of righteousness or on the way of wickedness. And by the way, there is no middle way. The Bible never speaks about a middle ground. Either you live a life of righteousness or a life of wickedness. There is no neutral way. There is no proverbial fence that you hear about. Either you're in one camp or the other. So Psalm 1 presents these two ways and these two destinies. Either you live righteously, godly in what pleases God, or you live a wicked, godless life. Look at verse 1. First of all, I want us to learn that the righteous separates oneself from wicked influences. Blessed is the man, or we can say the woman, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. My dear brothers and sisters, we learn very quickly that happiness begins with righteousness. The word here, blessed, can, is translated in some of your versions as happy, which is okay. It's one of the translations, which is okay. But I want us to see that biblical happiness has nothing to do with your circumstances. What does Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Happy are those who weep. I'm like, what? You mean you can weep and be happy? And the Bible says, yes. Because biblical happiness has nothing to do with our circumstances. Biblical happiness has nothing to do with our emotions. Biblical happiness has everything to do with our relationship with God and how we respond to His laws. In other words, you cannot be happy and walk on the path of wickedness. That's what the Bible teaches. So if you always think about, well, I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied. You have to ask yourself, how is my relationship with God? He wanted me to walk on this path. Am I walking on this path of righteousness or have I veered off to something else? Don't blame God for your disobedience. Take responsibility. Notice, please, that the first learn, lesson we're learning here is that happiness begins with righteousness. I, I like our declaration of independence. I became a, an American citizen in 1993. And the declaration of independence says that we have the right to pursue what? Happiness. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But the Bible says, 
Our pursuit should not be of happiness, but of righteousness. Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah, the Bible. The Bible teaches that biblical happiness is actually the pursuit of righteousness. And if you do that, then you'll be happy. But if you pursue happiness, you will not achieve righteousness. That's why you have people who say, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, I'm not happy. Well, how can you be happy when you live in sin? You cannot. The Bible teaches that. And I know it's, it's very simple, but it is true. Now, now notice please the, the verbs here. No, notice please the, the gradual decline. Walks not, stands not, sits not. It's because you first walk, then you hang out, and then you actually sit down and participate. And, and you see a gradual decline of what's going on here. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of Scuffers, the righteous, my dear brothers and sisters, the happy one, the blessed one, does not go in the same direction as the wicked. The blessed one, the happy one, does not hang out with sinners. The righteous one, the blessed one, does not participate. With the scoffers or the mockers. These are people not just who don't like the word of God. But make fun of you when you keep it. You've probably. Some of you watched the news. Some months ago. I remember a politician said. That he's not going to. Be in the same car or room with a woman. That's not his wife. That's an ethical principle. And what happened? He was mocked. He was made fun of. So if you decide to walk on the way of righteousness, don't expect people's applause. Because you'll not get them. Actually, if you get people's applause, you might be going in the wrong way. You might actually be hanging out with them. So we are called to be counterculture. Not cultured Christians. Counterculture. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But the blessed one always separates oneself from wicked influences. I remember hearing this illustration. It says that many years ago, you probably heard this illustration before, but many years ago, you know, when you still had carriages drawn by horses. Um, well, you still do. Okay. Anyway, go, go back with me a hundred years when everybody did that. So imagine that you have to go... On that way. And I heard there was a guy who wanted to hire a driver for his carriage so he can, so his family could be taken to the store in a nearby town. So the guy was trying to hire a driver for his carriage and said, Hey, you're gonna go by that way. Tell me, how close can you get to the edge and yet still keep my family safe? How, how, can you, how close can you get? So the first guy comes, very cocky and proud, says, oh, I can get this far away from the edge and not, you know, put your family in danger. The second one was even more cocky, even more proud. Oh, I can get this far from the edge 
and not keep your family and, and still keep your family safe. I, I can get very close to the edge. The third guy comes and says, Well, if the question is how safe can I keep your family, my, the question for me is not how close can I get to the edge, but how far can I get from the edge? See, when we try to hang out with these wicked people, we always ask, How close can I get to the edge? What kind of party can I go to? What can they do at that party? How close can I get? But you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go with them. Our question, my dear brothers and sisters, as we pursue righteousness, should not be how close can we get to the world, but how far can we get from the worldly views and the worldly ways. Righteousness is what leads us to happiness, not the other way around. And wickedness, we know, will never lead us to happiness. The righteous separates oneself from wicked influences. Maybe some of us need to stop and think, maybe we have the wrong friends. Maybe we need to change our friends. Or say no to certain things. And again, it's not going to be popular. But it depends what you want. What do you want to pursue? You want to pursue happiness or you want to pursue righteousness? The righteous one. Saturates oneself with the word of God. Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. For those of you who spend time with your children in your car a lot, I found a very good uh, app. If you don't have it, I highly recommend it to you. It's called the Holy Bible. Oh, surprise, surprise. This is very good. I, I'm telling you this because I've experienced it with my, with my kids. I, I do have two teenagers, so I do live in purgatory, for those of you who don't believe in purgatory. Okay? Uh, it's you version. But the beautiful thing about this is that you can, as, if you travel a lot in a car with them, you can actually listen to it. So, for example, if you go through the Psalms in your church service, listen to the Psalms in the car. One of the most beautiful things you can do to your kids is speak truth into their lives or let the Bible speak truth into their lives. Now, sometimes I listen to, you know, Elvis or Bill Gaither. But the best time in the, in the car would be to listen to the Word of God. Now, you might not have time to do that at home. So if you spend a lot of time with them in the, in the car, put that in the car and listen to the Word of God. Saturate not just yourself, but your whole family with the Word of God. Use that time. The righteous is blessed because he or she delights in the law of the Lord. Now it's not just reading it. It says here, meditating upon it. In ancient Israel, to meditate meant something like to murmur in a low voice as you read. There's something very beneficial about reading the Bible out loud. There's one thing to read it silently, and there's another one to read it out loud. Try it sometime, and you'll see how different it is. But it's not just that. It also had to do with the idea of chewing. I want you to imagine that you go to your favorite steak place, and you 
take a big bite of a most juicy steak. But you don't chew it. Doesn't that become gross? The idea is not just to bite, but to, to chew, to digest. And that's the thing about the same thing about the Bible. It's not just reading it, but meditating about it, thinking about it. What does it mean? And not just a one-time deal, but keep doing it and keep doing it. That's why it says here, day and night, day and night, day and night. Not just when you go to church on Sunday morning, but day and night. But Tiberius, I don't have time. I don't have time for the Bible. Well, let me ask you this. I know this is controversial, but could it be that you don't have time because you spent too, you, you spend too much time walking in the counsel of the wicked? Could it be that you don't have time for the Bible because you stand too much in the way of sinners? Could it be that I don't have enough time to read the Bible because I sit in the seat of scoffers? But if I clear my calendar of all those, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to have time for the Word of God. <laughs> so it might be time for us to clear our calendars. And maybe erase some people from our contact list. Because they are not leading us on the way of righteousness. But on the way of wickedness. My dear brothers and sisters, happiness begins with righteousness. And we have to get righteous habits like reading the Bible, meditating on it, singing words that come from the Bible. And when we do that, notice please, the righteous one prospers and is fruitful. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. My dear brothers and sisters, when we live a righteous life, it will show. People around us will see it. People will see it. Our spouses will see it. Our kids will see it. Our neighbors will see it. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by stream. And does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. Why? Because it's got good roots. My dear brothers and sisters, we have a choice. Are we going to pursue righteousness and thus achieve happiness? Or are we going to go in the way of the wicked? And the Bible says that the contrast is very clear. The wicked... Are not so. I know this is a tough, maybe harsh word, but that's what the Bible says. The wicked one is useless. The wicked ones are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Compare a tree with deep roots who bears fruit and the chaff which is driven away. There's no bigger contrast than that. In his Psalms commentary, Alan Ross, Alan Ross writes, Harvested wheat was crushed with a threshing sledge and then thrown into the air in a breezy location so that the little flakes of chaff could be blown away and the heavier grain fall to the ground. The figure shows that the ungodly are not only of no value, but also will eventually be removed. 
This imagery of winnowing at the harvest provided biblical characters, biblical writers, with a vivid picture of judgment. This is consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, Jesus says, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. But this is not just for time. Notice please that the wicked one is eternally judged. Eternally judged. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the wicked. But the way of the wicked will perish. My dear brothers and sisters. It's not just about time. It's about eternity. Happiness begins with righteousness and ends in eternal life. Wickedness starts with wickedness, with scoffing, making fun of God and His ways, and ends in eternal punishment. Because it's not just a matter of time, it's a matter of eternity. The way of the wicked will perish. I like the translation of the message. The message translation writes about Psalm 1 like this. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at sin saloon. You don't slink along dead end road. You don't go to smart mouth college. Instead you thrill to God's word. You chew on scripture day and night. You are a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. You are not at all like the wicked, you are, uh, who are mere windblown dust, without defense in court, unfit company for innocent people. God charts the way you take. The road they take is skid row. We have a choice. There are two ways. The righteous way and the wicked way. One will end up in being fruitful and blessed. One will end up being in eternal judgment. We have a choice. But also I want to point out that there is no righteous living apart from having Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. In other words, you cannot say, well, I'm going to really try hard to be righteous. And I'm going to have this wisdom from God. And the answer is, you cannot have wisdom from God and righteousness from God apart from a correct relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no. There is no way. And how do I know that? The Bible tells me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this in verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is not just the power of God. He's called also the righteousness of God by Paul in Corinthians. But also he's the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness. Oh, I love that verse. 
Because we cannot achieve this apart from Christ. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you come to the end of your life, you will hear two things. Either you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Or you will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. And you have a choice. You have a choice. And the choice is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or are you going to reject Him? There is no middle way. There is no middle ground. There is no proverbial fence. There's only two ways. My prayer is that you will accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you will be blessed. Putting away wicked things, wicked relationships. And pursue righteousness. And as you do that, you will achieve happiness. How do I know? The Bible tells me so.